Fayetteville congregation. Many of us know that congregation well and know Dave through many years of coming and speaking here each and every summer, I believe, uh, at least frequently throughout the years. Uh, Dave was reared in San Marcos, Texas, and was baptized there in 1971, where he began preaching in 1979, and has preached continuously since then. He was educated at Austin Community College, Southwest Texas State University, and the Victoria College, and is a 1980 graduate of the Southwest School of Biblical Studies in Austin. Dave and his wife, Luann, have three children and four grandchildren. They have worked with churches in Texas, Oklahoma, and Georgia, where they are now in their ninth year with the Fayetteville Church. They have also worked frequently in short-term and foreign and domestic mission efforts. Luann is a well-known author and frequent Ladies' Day speaker, and Dave has been privileged to teach in the Mangum, Oklahoma School of Biblical Studies and now in the Georgia School of Preaching and Biblical Studies, where he is in his seventh year as teacher. Dave is going to be bringing us a lesson on the fruit of the Spirit, particularly when it pertains to love, as we continue to try to study this summer what it means to be fruitful from Galatians chapter 5. Brother Dave. Good evening. It's good to see you this evening. Good to see so many of you too. It is a pleasure to be with you once again this evening. Uh, thank you very much to the elders of the congregation here, to Brother Kyle for the invitation, the opportunity to be with you. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16 and going down to verse 23, the Apostle Paul presents for us a, a vividly stark contrast between what he calls the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So take your Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 5 if you would, and let's read those few verses together, 16 down to 23. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, or as the King James says, temperance. Against such things, there is no law. Could there be a greater contrast? Works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. Concepts, behaviors, attitudes that are diametrically opposed to one another. Now, in the academic community, scholars and commentators, and for that matter, some preachers 
uh, will occasionally debate whether or not we should read that word fruit in verse 22 as a singular or a plural word. You go back into the, the Greek text and it is a singular word. Grammatically, it's singular, but the contextual usage of it is a collective noun. Uh, fruit includes everything that Paul describes here. Everything that he's about to mention. Love, joy, peace, and so forth. Don't overlook the distinction in this contrast between works and fruit. In the context, works are of human origin and of corrosive effect. They're not good things, works of the flesh. They originate with human desire. God created every appetite, every desire we possess. God created every appetite, every desire that we possess to be fulfilled, to be fully filled or satisfied in a righteous, innocent, pure, holy way. But the desires that Paul describes here in verses 19, 20, and 21 are methods or the works that he describes are ways of trying to satiate or satisfy those desires in an illegitimate way. They originate in a misuse of something God has created. On the other hand, even though those are produced only by, by lust and, and human selfishness, fruit, in verses 22 and 23, fruit is something that's grown. Something with potential to reproduce itself, to multiply itself through the, the nurturing spirit of God. Works are something built by, by mankind, by humanity, to serve our own purposes, to suit our own desires in the moment. But fruit stems from the true vine. What did Jesus say in John 15, verse 5? I'm the true vine, and you're the branches. If a branch abides in me, then it has life. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you bear much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. But nothing like that is said of the works of the flesh. Nothing comparable can be said of those. We're talking about fundamentally different ideas. Now, given that we can see here uh, the same apostle presenting the same basic contrast in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, we won't take the time to read all of that at, in, in this juncture. And what he's doing there is instructing Christians to put off the various behaviors and, and characteristics that engender, that, that bring upon us God's fully justified wrath, his, his anger, his judgment of us, put those things off in order to put on qualities and conduct that demonstrate the presence and the influence of Christ in our lives. Same basic contrast as we have here in Galatians chapter 5, given that he's talking about the same basic situation, 
I believe it's consistent to read love here in Galatians 5 and verse 22 as the first in a list of qualities or uh, characteristics that comprise the fruit of the Spirit. These are all aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's also worth pointing out over in 2 Peter chapter 1 in the passage that we typically describe as the Christian graces or the Christian virtues about verses 5, 6, and 7 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, there, the Apostle Peter also contrasts, not quite as pointedly, but contrasts nevertheless those good and godly characteristics with the evil impact that their absence produces in a person's life in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter chapter 1. So, when we read Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit as it's described here, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of Christians, it could be a little bit intimidating on an individual level to, to think about the enormity of what we can recognize there. The fruit of the Spirit, what did he say? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You know, it's, it's not hard to possess one or two of those things, even maybe three of them, and, and one or two of them in abundance. Ask any young man that's in, in love with a young woman. Oh, he's, he's, his, his heart is bursting with love. Patience, that may be another story. Kindness, that's something he's trying to learn because it impresses her. Goodness, well. Fruitfulness, faithfulness, what have you. It's one thing to look at one or two or three of these characteristics, but we put all of them together and begin to contemplate them, and oh my goodness, this is huge. This, this affects every aspect, every component of who and what I am. That's a tall order. It makes us very, very aware of how unlike our Savior we can sometimes be, doesn't it? Well, nevertheless, I would submit to you there's a very logical progression in these qualities as Paul presents them here. Now, the Galatians, the people of Gaul, which would, from our geographic perspective, at that point in time be uh, middle and north Eastern Europeans, that region of Europe north of Turkey, basically, edging over toward Germany and so forth, people who would eventually migrate westward through Europe. The Galatian people, the Gauls, were notable for their, their frankness and for their changeableness, their excitability and so forth. They were not noted for being constant, consistent, stable. But instead, they were noted for being uh, excitable. 
very enthusiastic one minute and on to something else the next. And so Paul presents these qualities in a way where they build one upon the other. Not to a climax, but to a complete image. And love is the foundation of them all. So let's take a few moments now and look a little closer at the love that heads this description of the Spirit's fruit and, and recognize that this is, in one sense, this is the foundation of all spiritual fruit. And the love that Paul is describing here is the most powerful force in all of the universe in, in, in a variety of ways. Now, you may be aware that there are multiple words in the Greek language for the word love that are translated by the English word love or the Spanish word amor. Two of the four words are found frequently throughout the New Testament. The most commonly used word, and it's the word that we're talking about here, is the Greek word agape. If you were going to spell it out, it would be A-G-A-P-E with an accent over the E. Agape. Agapao in this particular case. It appears 200 and some odd times in the New Testament. But the next most common word that is also used in the New Testament is the word phileo. Anybody here ever been to Philadelphia? The city of brotherly love? That's where that name comes from. From phileo and adelphos, brother love. Phileo meaning love or to to like, it's, it's a, a word that means affection, uh, the emotion that we feel toward one another. Friendship is a variety of this kind of love. And of course, Adelphia, brothers, the city of brotherly love. But this is, is warm affection, good fellowship, you might say, between uh, human beings. There are two other Greek words that don't appear in the New Testament. One is the word storge that refers to uh, normal paternal or, or maternal love, the, the, the affection of a parent for a child, natural affection. Think of a dog licking her puppies uh, when they're newborn. That's, that's the kind of idea there, a natural affinity. It's, it's, there's no particular emotion attached to it. It's just a natural affection, natural connection. And then there's that word eros, which is the root of our English word erotic. And that refers to passion, to desire, physical desire particularly. And that's also not used in the New Testament context. But agape, the word in our text here, that's the love that seeks the well-being of another person irrespective of that other person's response. That's the love that goes beyond a parent merely providing for the basic physical needs of a child, but being willing to lay down their life for that child. How many of you with children or grandchildren 
uh, would, would willingly, if, if necessary, lay down your life for that child. I have three children. I have four grandchildren. My wife would, would, would not hesitate to lay down her life for any one of them. Nor would I. That goes beyond ordinary parental affection. It seeks the welfare of the other person regardless of whether that person appreciates it or not. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, just back up a little bit here, in verse 6, it's the motive that engenders actions of faith. Now he says in verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision uh, counts for anything, availeth anything, but only faith working through love. It's the motive that prompts this, this action of faith. Go down to verse 13. It's the reason that Christians serve one another. In verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's the motive. This type of love is, is described as the self-sacrificing or, or the grace of self-giving. The grace of giving yourself for someone else's benefit. It's rooted in reason. It's rooted in will. How many of you ever fell in love? I fell in love 40, 42 years ago. My wife and I just had our 41st anniversary last month. I fell in love. I chased her until she caught me. And, and, and I've been caught ever since. But you know what? I did not trip over a crack in the sidewalk and hit my head and decide that I loved this woman. We actually met when I was about 12 and she was about 10. We didn't see each other for several years. Then when I was freshly out of high school working and she was still in high school, we became reacquainted and then after she finished high school and I was a student in Bible school, we became better acquainted. And in the course of that year of getting better acquainted, you know what I did? I made a decision. I decided to love her. And apparently she made the same decision because she's stuck with me all these years. But it was a deliberate act of will. It wasn't something that snuck up and caught me unawares. It was a reasoned decision. And that's what Paul is describing here. This kind of love is a choice, not a feeling. Now, there are feelings associated with it, yes. We're emotional creatures. God made us that way. But it's not, a, it's, it's not what Paul is describing here is not some overpowering emotion. It is a choice. And that's why it seeks another person's good. That's what makes it beneficent. Beneficent. 
That's what makes it look for the other person's well-being and welfare. Brother Robert Taylor noted in some comments on this that this kind of love, agape, touches God, touches others, and touches self in that God's grace, to reverse the order of these things, which is the outgrowth of His love for us, the grace of God, Paul tells Titus, in Titus chapter 2, teaches us to live soberly. That's how it affects us. It changes the way we live. To live righteously, that's how it affects others through us. We live uprightly in the presence of one another and in relation to one another and we live godly that is we live we affect we touch God with that love by living according to his will modeling ourselves on him seeking to be like him which makes perfect sense if you think about it because who are you modeled on now these last 10 years or so when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror in the bathroom, I'm, I'm a little bit startled because my father looks back at me. I'm modeled on him to some degree. And that's very disconcerting for my wife at times. <laughs> But who are we ultimately modeled on? If we're Christians, we're supposed to resemble, to look like our Father. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. What does, what, what does God say? Let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the members of the Godhead, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And that doesn't mean simply we're free moral agents. That's part of it. But it also means we're supposed to, we're designed to, we're intended to look like God. We'll come back to that in a minute. In Galatians chapter 6, in verses 7 and 8, in the New King James Version, we read, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, plants, that he will also reap. He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. We have a choice laid before us. We are made in the image of God in that we have the ability to choose. What are we choosing? To love like Him? Or to love self the way Satan wants us to? Sobriety speaks to the way we handle ourselves. Righteousness relates to how we interact with others. Godliness pertains to our relationship and our responsibility toward God. In other words, there is no part of our lives that's left unaffected, that's left untouched by the decision to love or to not love as God has loved us. Go back to 
what we sometimes describe as the golden text of the Bible. What, what do you find in John 3 and verse 16? You could probably recite it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. We sometimes describe that as the golden text of the Bible or the gospel in a single verse. And that's, that's, that's appropriate. But go over to 1 John chapter 4, and look at verses 7 and 8, and what does John also tell, the same John, by the way, same Holy Spirit, authoring these things through his pen. What does John tell us there? 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Same kind of love, same self-sacrificing, others' welfare-seeking, even at our own expense kind of love. Let us love one another because love is of God. It's a characteristic of God. It originates with Him. That quality of looking out for others' welfare, even when they don't appreciate it or even when they don't take note of it or even when they disregard our care and concern for them, well, that's a quality of God. And we're supposed to be like Him. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. John goes on, and in verse 8, 1 John chapter 4, He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God defines love. God defines everything, really. But God in particular defines love. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, where we were a minute ago. Verses 11 and 12, the seed principle shows us what that kind of love actually does. You remember in the, in the course of creation, God says, let the earth bring forth trees and bushes and grass and plants and all those things. And what does he say? Bearing seed each after its own kind. And it was so. Oh, and, and it doesn't just apply to plants, does it? The next day, what does God create? Animals and people. And dogs produce puppies and cats produce kittens and snakes produce little crawly snakes and chimpanzees don't produce people. They produce more chimpanzees. The seed principle still operates. But don't kid yourself. We're not able to make a mockery of God, and He will not tolerate us making a mockery of God. Whatever we plant is what we'll harvest. Look at the instructions that precede Paul's comparison or Paul's illustration of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Go back to Galatians chapter 6 and notice in verse 16. This I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, the New King James Version says. And you will not gratify. Some translations say make no provision to gratify the lusts of the flesh. Over in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself speaks about the consistency 
of what we call the seed principle. Look at chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. Start at verse 15 and go down to verse 20 with me. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Anybody read the, the comics in the paper? I know Lyle does, read, reads the comics every, every day. I forget which one it was, but one of the little one-frame comics today had a picture of a, a wolf standing outside a department store window, looking in the window at the display, which was labeled sheep's clothing, three or four different kinds. I thought that was ironic since I would make reference to that passage this evening. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them, you'll be able to identify them, by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, in the same way, Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's suitable for firewood, not for, for fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now notice over in Luke chapter 8, in verse 11, that's the, the statement that comes hard on the heels of the parable that we call the parable of the soils, or sometimes the parable of the sower, a farmer, a sower went out to sow to plant his seeds. And some fell by the wayside and some fell on, on stony ground and some fell on thorny ground and some fell on the good ground. And the birds gathered the seed from the wayside ground and never even got a chance to sprout. And the seed that fell on the stony ground uh, sprouted up but then got scorched by the heat of the day. And the seed that fell amongst the, the thorns or the thistles in the weedy ground got choked out by the weeds. And the seed that fell on the good ground, well, it brought forth 30, 60, 100 fold. And the disciples said, Lord, explain that to us. And he said, first thing you need to know, verse 11, the seed is the word of God. Likewise, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, Jesus taught the disciples that the seed of the kingdom is God's word. It's the product, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. According to John chapter 16, verse 13, he shall, speaking to the apostles, he said, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth, bring to your memory everything that I've taught you. Now, go back to Galatians chapter 5. Go back to that list in verses 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, in all of those things, love is the motivator. Love is the motivator of all of the other spiritual fruit. Each one of those qualities, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, each, each one of those things is interrelated with each other and with love. They're not independent of each other. 
They're codependent, each upon all of the others. Taken together, all of the characteristics, all of these things, form a whole, the fruit of the Spirit, qualities of genuine spiritual fruit. It's important to, to point out, though, it's important to, to think about the fact that this kind of fruit is only produced by the influence of God's Spirit. Without the love that He provides and illustrates and defines for us, no other fruit can be sound or whole. Do we have any gardeners in the congregation? I think I heard somebody saying something about uh, squash a while ago. You ever picked a bad squash, a bad fruit, a bad vegetable, one that it, it, it looked good until you turned it over and you turned it over and it was, oh, yuck. It was just rotten on the other side. And maybe there was some of it that could be salvaged and, and it was just tempting to say, you know, this is just not worth it. I'll pitch it out and let the deer have it. Without agape, without the love that God has demonstrated for us, none of these other aspects of spiritual fruit can ever be whole, can ever be sound by themselves. And that's why human efforts to produce a moral society apart from God are inevitably doomed to failure. We have violence in our cities and, and uh, conflict and, and stress and strife in our schools and, and we wonder why in the world our, our, our youth are the way they are and, and so forth. And what's happening? Many of the people in charge are trying to create a society with rules and regulations and guidelines and morality that are completely divorced from any reference to or respect for or even knowledge of God. You know what? This is not the first time in human history that this has happened. We don't even have to go back to the ancient Greeks and Romans to see what happens. Seventy years of communism from 1917 to 1989 in Eastern Europe, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, officially atheist, officially godless, a moral society without God, except it wasn't. It's not possible to create a moral society apart from God, because God defines love. And you take God out of the picture and that word love becomes functionally meaningless. Well, anybody here happen to know the history of the, the little town of Liberal, Kansas? Lived out in western Oklahoma for about 10 years of, of our married life and about 250 miles north and a little bit west of us is a, 
a little town named Liberal, Kansas. And Liberal, Kansas, when Kansas Territory was opened up, Liberal, Kansas was established by folks whose intention was to basically to create a, a utopia on the plains free of the influence of religion. And so after just a few years, they had no churches of any variety, but they had so many brothels and so many saloons and, and so forth. And it was a place that no decent person wanted to try to rear their children. It was a failure until religion moved in. Until the knowledge, the concept of God, the, the influence of God in his word began to be felt. The so-called altruistic love of the philosopher is no substitute for the commitment of the love of God inspired by and modeled through the Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit produces exactly this kind of love among Christians because God is love. Remember we looked at 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 a minute ago and how does that summarize, how does that wind up? For God is love. And this kind of love is the hallmark of true disciples. What did Jesus say to his own apostles in John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35? Most of you could probably quote it. A new commandment give I unto you, that you love one another. That wasn't new. You know, Jesus in that context was a Jew speaking to fellow Jews, telling them to love one another, and you go back into the law of Moses, and what were Jews commanded to do? They were supposed to love one another, weren't they? So that part of it wasn't new. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even, adverb of manner, in the same way that I have loved you. Well, how has he loved them? He's provided for them, taken care of them, taught them, and so forth. He's about to do a whole lot more on the cross. But then he goes on by this. By this kind of self-sacrificing love. By this kind of love that seeks others' welfare even when they don't appreciate it and don't return it. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. That you have love. That you use, that you apply love for one another. That's the hallmark of a genuine disciple of Christ. It's the kind of love that, that fills full the law. In Romans chapter 13, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans and says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Look at Galatians chapter 6. We know verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. But then go on and look at verse 2, a very simple appendage to that simple statement. Bear one another's burdens. When was the last time you bore somebody else's burden? Or even offered? 
Have you ever asked someone to help you bear a burden? Bear one another's burdens, and so, adverb of manner, this is how you do it, fulfill the law of Christ. How about James chapter 2 and verse 8? James, probably one of the younger half-siblings, half-brothers of our Lord himself, writing by inspiration, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. How do you build that kind of love? How do you build that kind of love in your own life? Take your Bible and flip over to Luke chapter 10 for just a moment. Luke chapter 10, and notice in verse 27 there, Jesus, in essence, says, copy God. Copy God. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in this context, a lawyer stood up, verse 25, put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? How readest thou? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. How do you build that kind of love? Copy God. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. Love with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It takes a deliberate act of will to do that, doesn't it? Has there ever been a moment in your life that you weren't very lovable? Brothers, I'm not going to ask your wives because we know what they'd say. And they'd give us the date and the time of day and the place and the weather forecast and the circumstance... The, and ladies, I'm not, I'm not far bit from me to think that you would hold a grudge. Love the Lord your God. Love like God. How do you build that kind of love? Well, copy Him. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew chapter 22, what is the first and great commandment? Same kind of context as this, not the same circumstance. What's the great commandment in the law? Love God. And a second one that's just as important, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, Jesus says, verses 36 and 37, 38, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. Here's an interesting thought. How do you build this kind of love? Love yourself. Do you love yourself? Brother Ben, do you love yourself? He's back there saying, yeah. Brother Mike, how about you? Well, I bathe me, and I clothe me, and I put me to bed and 
get me some rest occasionally, and, and I, I certainly buffet my body. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. 1 Corinthians 9. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Does that mean I need to feed him and clothe him and provide for him? Could be. Remember that uh, Samaritan that Jesus talked about? Who was his neighbor? Who was the neighbor of the man that was, was injured? The guy that took care of him. And he was a Samaritan. The most hated, despised of all people in the, in the ancient Jewish mind. But that's not why we love self. Why do you love yourself, Lyle? It's because he's so handsome. His wife says, yes, no. It's because you love what God loves. Jesus loves me. I know this. How do I know this? God gave me a book that tells me that. Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. I don't love myself because I'm so worthy and deserving and I'm so great and I'm so handsome and all that kind of drivel. I value me because God values me. Think about this in that particular context. How much are you worth? With inflation and so forth, the, the, the actual chemical value of the, the atoms and elements that make, make up your physical Body, you're worth $12, $15, $20 maybe. Carbon, iron, zinc, manganese, water. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? I've lived 60 some odd years and I'm only worth 20 some bucks. Think of it this way. If in the judgment day, when the books are opened and the Lamb's book of life is opened, if there is one, only one name in the Lamb's book of life, out of all the billions of people who've ever lived and will ever live, and there's only one name, and it's yours. Not only will the God who loves you say, well done, good and faithful servant, but in his estimation, everything he has done from the beginning of time until that moment, including the suffering, the agony, the death of Christ, is worth it for your name to be there. Love yourself. Not in an egotistical way, 
but in the recognition that God loves you. Love your brethren. How do you build this kind of love? Love your brethren. <laughs> we can be tough to love sometimes, can't we? Look at 1 John chapter 4. Go back there to 1 John chapter 4. And notice at verse 21 what the Apostle John writes there. This commandment we have from him that whoever loves God must also love his brother. Did I just hear a bell? Okay. And one other thought. Go back to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. Copy God, love Him, love your neighbor, love yourself, love your brethren, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Matthew 5, 43, 44. We often look to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, as the definitive biblical statement about love. And we do that usually without considering its overall context. And the overall context is that it's the middle of three chapters that ought to really just be one great big long chapter, kind of like, uh, like the Psalm 119 of the New Testament. But the overall context has to do with miracles, signs, wonders, spiritual gifts, and the fact that those things would pass away, but love would survive. Love would last. Notice the statement at the very end, verse 13 in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love. And what does Paul say? The greatest of these is love. What 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the whole chapter, shows us in the middle of that context of difficulty and, and misunderstanding by some of the early Christians, what that shows us is that far from the things that they were zeroed in on mattering greatly, love, like God has for us, is essential. Love suffers long and is kind. Love is not puffed up, not self-inflated, and so forth. Love is essential, verses 1, 2, and 3. Love is characterized by these qualities, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And it's only this kind of beneficent, self-sacrificing, self-effacing care for others that is truly lasting, truly durable, verses 8 through 13. It's only that kind of love that lasts in eternity. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, love appears as the foundation of all of the other spiritual aspects or spiritual fruit. It's interrelated with all of them. It's essential, fundamental to them. The substance, the, the basis on which they're built, on which they rest. But flip over to Colossians chapter 3, 
and verse 14. And there, in a very similar comparison, a very similar contrast, Paul puts it in a different location and he says, put on love, which is the bond or the belt of perfectness, maturity, full-grownness. And then jump over to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, that list of the Christian graces, as we call them. And where does Peter put it? It's not at the feet, and it's not around the middle. It's the capstone. It's the head. I would suggest to you that, that this, this multiple placement of this same characteristic, characteristic emphasizes just how essential, how, how fundamental love is to the essence of the Christian life. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And that love is the foundation of every other aspect of spiritual fruit that we're able to bear through the Spirit's influence in our lives and through the Word. It's the very nature of God. It's the crowning element of His identity and His character. It's been perfectly, flawlessly illustrated and displayed for us through the life the teaching and the sacrifice of Jesus. It's what prompts the, the religion of the second mile, as it's sometimes called. It's what makes this life worth living. And so, truly, as the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, starting from verse 17 now and going down to the end of the chapter, love has been perfected, brought to its fullness among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is so are we in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment but he who fears has not been made perfect or mature in love we love him because he first loved us if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. I asked a question a minute ago about bearing burdens. Have you ever asked someone to help you bear a burden? I don't mean help me pick up this heavy box. I mean help me carry a burdensome load in my life. If you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, one who has taken the first steps in faith that are outlined in the pages of the New Testament, one of the privileges that belongs to you, part of your birthright in Christ, is the liberty, the freedom to turn to a brother or sister in Christ and say, help me bear this burden. And to do so in the confidence that because of the love of Jesus Christ for you, that brother or that sister will help you. Maybe you need to do that tonight with the gathered brothers and sisters here say help me bear this burden
or join with me at the throne of grace as I seek God's forgiveness. The effectual fervent prayer, James says, of a righteous man avails much. Maybe you have not taken the first steps in faith. You have not made the decision that you are going to believe in Jesus Christ as the living Son of the living God and let that guide and shape and inform and reform your life through repenting of sin. Maybe you've not yet made the good confession, not a confession of all the sins you've ever committed, but a confession of what you believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the living Son of the living God. And you've not yet put on the Lord in baptism. You can do that tonight. Everything is prepared and the opportunity is yours. Our brother's going to come and lead us as we stand together now in a song that we call an invitation song, a song of encouragement. If you want to answer the Lord's invitation, do it tonight. Do it now. Why we